If you have your Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 2. I grew up in the South. It wasn't until I moved to Texas that I found out that this isn't the South. Uh, but I grew up in the South, lived in Alabama, South Carolina, Mississippi, uh, went to college in the South, uh, served churches in the South. And then the Lord one day moved me, uh, 20 plus years ago now, moved me to Ohio uh, to lead a church in central Ohio. And there I experienced culture shock. Uh, the people in Ohio didn't understand some of my vocabulary. Uh, they would laugh every time I would say the word naked. And uh, they once asked me at the end of a sermon, what in the world is a poem? Uh, they thought y'all was some family uh, back in my uh, hometown. And when I told them that I had carried my wife to the store, they just didn't believe me. Um, the people in Ohio also ate some pretty weird things. They put cinnamon sugar on their chili, and then they put that on spaghetti noodles. Their favorite church dish was noodles on mashed potatoes. And instead of drinking Coke they would drink pop. And then most egregious of all, they believed that Ohio State was a football powerhouse. <laughs> but what I learned there is that what we think of as normal is largely determined by our surroundings, by our environment, our, our culture. If you need another example of this, just think of the way styles have changed through the years, the way hairstyles have changed through the years. Ladies, if you dressed today and you fixed your hair today, by the way, you don't say fixed like that in Ohio, they'll laugh at you. Uh, but if you did all of that today, like you did in 1975, we'd all be laughing, right? I remember in the 80s, my teenage sisters, they had hair so big, I believe it took a can of hairspray every single morning. And in their rooms, they had posters of supposedly men in boy bands that had even bigger hair and more makeup. Um, my junior year of high school, I think I wore nothing but green military camouflage pants for the entire year. Uh, our culture largely determines just what we think is normal. But not just normal, our culture determines oftentimes what we think of as right, right and wrong. When I read history, and I love to read history, uh, I am so troubled by Christians who used to believe that holding slaves was a right and proper thing to do. I've read sermons, uh, preached long, long ago, but sermons preached by men who, who in every other respect were great men of God and, and students of the Bible, scholars of the finest degree, but I've read their sermons where they advocated for 
for slavery. How horrible, how misguided, how short-sighted, how sinful that was. It hasn't been very many decades since uh, so many churches in America uh, would, though not condone slavery, but wouldn't, wouldn't permit people who weren't white people to worship with people who were white people. And, and you wonder, how did those people think that was right? Well, I'm not excusing sin is sin. Uh, sin has always been sin. But in large part, what we think is right is determined, unfortunately, by the, by the culture that we live in. Uh, there was a time when churches actually advocated for abortion. Uh, late 60s, a pastor would have been more likely to preach in favor of abortion than opposed to abortion. Uh, Christians love to complain about all of the sin and the sexual sin on television today. When's the last time you had a conversation about that? Everything on television is horrible today. But you know, first we know it's horrible because of what? <laughs> because we're watching it, right? And then uh, if, you, if you look back even a few years ago, the things that, that Christians typically watch today we would have condemned five years ago or ten years ago, but now things, have, things are different. It's almost as if Christians are just a year behind the world when it comes to sin. And so even our sense of right and wrong sometimes, unfortunately, is determined by our culture. Uh, every week now, churches... Even in Nacogdoches, churches are, are turning from what the Bible clearly says is right and wrong when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender, when it comes to all of the issues that touch on that. And, and, and some of these churches just, just 10, 15 years ago, they would have stood and said, we will never compromise on this. And now they advocate for that which they said they would never compromise. Why? Because our sense of right and wrong too often comes just from our culture. It doesn't come from God's Word. It doesn't come from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It comes too often from our culture. Our culture exerts this immense pressure on us to compromise and to conform. And it's difficult to resist that. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to resist that. Our entire understanding of right and wrong can be changed by our culture without us even realizing it. So is there any hope? Is there any hope for us to be the salt uh, of the world? Is, is there any hope that we would be faithful to God in a, in a culture that more and more is turning in a different direction? Uh, it's interesting that James, the Bible writer, said that we should keep ourselves, James 1.27, unstained from the world. That tells us that this has been a fight Christians have faced for a very, very long time. 
Uh, Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he urged his readers to be strangers and aliens in the world. He understood that there is this pressure to conform. He said, no, you need to be an alien in the world. You need to be different. And the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 2, he warned us, do not be conformed to the world. Why would he say that? Because very often we're conformed to the world. So we're taking a few weeks, in fact, a few months, and we're studying Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, the first six chapters. And what we're studying is how a group of people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four Jewish men who had been taken from their homes, marched 800 miles through the desert, and had been placed right in the middle of a pagan culture, a culture that... that believed in right and wrong in a diametrically opposed way. And they're put into this horrible culture where the worship of these false gods was front and center. And these four men, listen, this is amazing. These four men didn't compromise. These four men remained faithful to God. But at the same time, they were They became men of influence. They were successful in their careers. And they ended up being a a, a source, a, a signpost for the glory of God in the middle of that wicked culture. So I want us as a church to learn how that happened. Because while we've not moved from one culture to another, our culture here has changed. And we now find ourselves living in a modern-day Babylon. That's where these four men ended up, Babylon. And, and, and we're in Babylon. We're in a culture that rejects the, the truth of God's Word. We're in a culture that is going in a completely different direction. So how can we be faithful, but it, at the same time, Uh, have influence for Christ in in our culture. And so we started this last week in Daniel 1, today Daniel 2. Uh, Next week, I think we'll still be in Daniel 2. We'll see. We'll work our way through these first six chapters. I'll give you just a little background quickly. Uh, This is about 600 years before Christ. Uh, the, The Jewish people had been warned through the prophets that if they were not faithful to God, that God would send an enemy to come in and conquer them and take them away. They were not faithful to God. So God allows the Babylonians, just as it was prophesied, the Babylonians to come in, conquer the nation, carried many of the people, many of the people away. They call that the exile. And these four men, along with many others, they were part of the exile. They're in a new culture. And they're learning, they're struggling, but they're learning how to live in this new culture. So last week we focused on what they did. Uh, They were uh, confronted with pressure to conform uh, to the culture, and they did something. And we learned lessons from that. Today, I want to, to learn not just from what they have done, but from an attitude that they had. And this, listen church, is key for all of us. If you have a job and you go into the workplace tomorrow, it's important that you go with this attitude. 
If, if you're going to be a witness for Christ in your business world, you need to have this attitude. If you're going to be a witness for Christ on the SFA campus, whether you're a student, faculty, or staff, you need to go in with this attitude. If, if you're going to have an influence as a student in a, in a world where people are rejecting Christ, you need to have this attitude. So let's read. We're in Daniel chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, the Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. And so he has these dreams, can't sleep, he's bothered. Verse 2, so the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and I'm anxious to understand it. And so he calls together his advisors. Uh, they're called here magicians and mediums and sorcerers, Chaldeans. That was a people from a certain region, but they were known for their wisdom of the day. And so these are the wise men. These are the advisors to royalty. He brings them in. He says, I've had a dream. I'm anxious about it. It's bothering me. Verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king, and uh, just a, a little note here, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for one spot. From this verse, Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of Daniel 7, it's a different language. And if you'll come on a Wednesday night for our adult Bible studies, uh, perhaps we'll, we'll learn why. But right here in verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king. Aramaic begins here, it likely says in your Bible. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. All right, can you see that there's a, <laughs> there, there's a, there's a trick going on right there? Well, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. By the way, I can do that for $1,000. If, <laughs> if you'll tell me the dream, I'll give you an interpretation and uh, for 2,000, I'll give you two interpretations, right? <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's a foolish thing. Of course, anybody can give some made-up interpretation, and the king knew that. So he didn't fall for it. Verse 5, the king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a garbage dump. So the king said, okay, but I don't want you just to interpret it. First of all, I want you to tell me what the dream was and then interpret it. At this point, the Chaldeans had this giant lump in the back of their throat because the king says, if you can't do that, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and I'll destroy your house. I'll destroy your family. Look at verse 6. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, a great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. Now that's a difficult assignment, right? Uh, they had to know what the dream was without being told, and that seemed impossible. So it was a difficult assignment. It also was high risk. It's not like if they can't do this that they're going to get their pay docked for the day. They're going to lose their lives if they don't do this. High risk. So what did the king's advisors say? 
Look at verse 11. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Now they got this part right. They said, we can't do this. Only God could do this. Only God could tell you what your dream was. Look at verse 12. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So he says, kill them. Kill them all. Kill the ones that are here. Kill the ones that aren't here. Kill them all. Kill them all. Verse 13, the decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed. And they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. So there are many wise men, advisors, and some were there, some were not. Daniel and his friends were not present, but they were still to be killed. And so they're searching for all of the wise men, rounding them up, executing them. And somebody is sent to find Daniel and his friends and to execute them. Now this seems like a story that's not going to have a very pleasant uh, ending, but there's a plot twist you know, in all the best movies, it, uh, you're presented with a crisis, uh, a hopeless crisis sometimes, but then there's a plot twist. Things change, and here, things change. A plot twist that was built on the character of Daniel. A plot twist that occurs here because four things are true about Daniel and his attitude. And that's the whole reason the plot twist happens. So what were these four things that turned this situation that was going to end in the execution of God's people and goes in a very different, uh, different, very different way? So now, before I give you the answer, I, I want us to go back and look at verse 5 one more time. Verse 5 said, the king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. So we're not going to discuss this. There's no appeal. My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretations, you will be torn limb from limb. Uh, listen, church and parents, uh, students, business people, teachers, educators, uh, moms and dads and grandparents, just as the king of Babylonian, of the Babylonian culture, was coming after Daniel and his friends, so the king of culture today is coming after you. It's coming after your future. It's coming after your family. Things aren't just changing in our culture. They're changing faster than they changed yesterday. And just like at this point in the story with Daniel and his friends, it seemed like a hopeless situation and that there was no way out. I'm telling you, for our, for our culture, it seems pretty hopeless and it seems there's no way out. I have three daughters that just very early in their adulthood and I'm fearful for them and the culture that they will grow up in. If the Lord leads them to have children, uh, and I hope he does, uh, but uh, I will be even more fearful for the culture that those children, my grandchildren, would grow up in. So it's a hopeless situation, except that there could be a plot twist if you and I if it could be true of us, these four things that were true of Daniel. So let me show them to you. Number one, 
Daniel had an unshakable faith, an unshakable faith. Uh, now, we haven't read it yet, but the executioners show up at Daniel's house. And they're there to arrest him and his friends. They're going to tear them limb from limb. Wouldn't that be an awful way to die? So what is Daniel going to do? The knock is at the door. Here are the executioners. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to exhibit an unshakable faith. Let's read in verse 14. It says, then Daniel responded. He's talking to the executioners, by the way. Daniel responded with tact and discretion. To Arioch, he's the leader of the executioners. So Daniel responds with tact and discretion. I'm not sure that's the way they would have described my response. Uh, it says, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to execute some of the wise men. That's who Arioch was. Verse 15, he asked Arioch, uh, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? And then Arioch explained the whole situation. Well, the Advisors couldn't tell him the dream, and they said it was hopeless. And the king said, well, if it's hopeless, then your life is hopeless, and death sentence. In verse 16, so Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time. I would think at this point if there was anybody you'd want to avoid, it would be the king. But Daniel says, I want to see the man. And Daniel goes to the king, and then he makes a promise. Look there at verse 16. Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. He said, king, give me some time. I'll come back in here. I'll tell you the dream and the interpretation. No sweat. I got it. Just give me a little time. And so Daniel makes this promise, this promise that comes from his unshakable faith and his complete confidence in in God with with Daniel there was no panic oh no the world's coming to an end they're coming to execute us there was no panic Daniel didn't wring his hands Daniel didn't attack the messenger either verbally or physically um, he was just calm in fact I thought I made a little note for myself and maybe for my wife uh, Perhaps we should read Daniel chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 13 is when they come, the executioner comes. 14 is when Daniel responds with tact and discretion. So I'm thinking about printing that out. And then every time I have to call AT&T, <laughs> I'm just going to read that. And maybe it will inspire me to be more Christ-like. That was free. Uh, so Daniel, though, no panic. Uh, Daniel didn't flee, didn't run, didn't say the world's coming to an end. He calmly collected additional information. Tell me what's going on, Mr. Executioner. I need the details. And then he said, I need to go see the king. And I'm not just going to go see the king. I'm going to tell the king, I got your answer. You just got to gotta give, me, give me a night. Let me sleep on it, and I'll give you an answer. Uh, now, how could Daniel respond so calmly and so confidently? Because Daniel believed and trusted that God was in control. That's the only way you could have this calm attitude when the executioner has come. The only way you could do that is if you had full confidence that, hey, God's in charge. God's in charge. I know it doesn't look good. 
I know that the numbers haven't come back well. I know that the doctor's report doesn't look good. I know that the boss is not reasonable. I know that the grades may not be good. But I'm calm because I trust the Lord. Uh, This is the first identifying mark of God's people. God's people don't panic. Why don't God's people panic? Because God's in control. God's people don't despair. God's people don't flee. God's people don't quit. Why? Because we have confidence and unshakable faith. God's in control. What should the world see when they look at God's people? They should see people with an unshakable faith. They should not find us panicking, freaking out, anxious, despairing, We should remind ourselves when a crisis comes, my God is in control and he can be trusted. I remember the first time I flew uh, as a passenger uh, over the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I was not looking forward to it. I don't like to fly and, um, well, I just don't like to fly. (laughs) I tried to put a manly spin on it and I can't think of one. I just don't like to fly, but I needed to fly and we were flying from, I don't, I think it was DC, it may have been New York, and we were flying from there to London and then on to a place in Africa. And I'm already pretty nervous. Uh, I am, I'm thinking all these horrible thoughts, the plane's going to crash in the Atlantic and I'm going to get eaten by sharks and, and um, so we take off, it's, there's a storm, uh, but we take off and we, it, we've been in the air maybe 20 or 30 minutes and uh, the um, turbulence starts. And I have not uh, flown enough at that time or really at all, uh, certainly not an expert. Uh, I had not flown enough to know you know, what really, really bad turbulence is. And, 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 and this must not have been really, really bad turbulence, but, but I assessed it as really bad. And we were bouncing around and people were, uh, you know, crying and, uh, and squealing and, and screaming and people were upset. And I was doing all of that, but just on the inside, because I had <laughs> church people with me. And, um, I don't know if I was more fearful that I was going to die or more fearful that I was going to scream. <laughs> I didn't know which would be worse in the long run. Uh, but listen, I, I, I gained confidence from one thing. I could see a flight attendant. It was a woman, she was sitting in, do they call that a jump seat or whatever, facing the other direction? And she was jostling around. I mean, it was bouncing. But she wasn't worried at all. She just had this calm look on her face. I think she was thinking, you know, if this would keep on going all the way there, I wouldn't have to get up and do anything. Um, But I gained confidence from her confidence. Because she is an expert, right? I mean, she flies all the time, I, I assume. And what the world ought to see in us, what the world ought to see in you, is what the king saw in Daniel, just an unshakable faith, unshakable faith. The second thing is a gentle 
resolve, a gentle resolve. Uh, in a sense, uh, all four of these markers, uh, shakable faith, unshakable faith, gentle resolve, are, are essentially the same. We're just going to expand a little bit each time. And that's the case here with general resolve. If you have an unshakable faith, then you can have a gentle resolve. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. Look back at verse 14. It says, Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch. Uh, tact and discretion. Tact and discretion. It, it seemed that Daniel was in control of his emotions and his words and his responses. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. We saw it back in chapter 1 last week in verse 8. When, when they were seeking to force Daniel and his friends to eat food that Daniel believed was the wrong thing for him to do, it, it said in verse 8, Daniel 1, 8, that he resolved in his heart that he would not do it. But then it says at the end of the verse, he went and asked permission to take a different path and to choose a different diet. So you see that he had this resolve. He resolved that he wouldn't do it. But he didn't go and just bang on the table and say, I will not ever eat your terrible food. No, he went with gentleness and with humility. And then in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, he even presented an alternative to uh, the, the, the captors and, and, and said, well, let's, let me give you an alternative. Maybe we could do this instead of what you've proposed and then we can test and we'll see how it goes. And you see, Daniel had this absolute uncompromising resolve, but he was not obnoxious about it. He, he wasn't going to compromise, but he also understood that not only did he need to be uh, faithful to what God had told him to do, but he was also there so that he could have influence for the glory of God. So he was resolute and he was gentle. Resolute and gentle, both. It's not either or. I know people will say uh, on your way out today, well, pastor, when I read about Jesus, I see that on two different occasions, he sat down, made whips, and ran people out of the temple. Well, you're right. He did twice and only twice. And the people, by the way, that he was running out of the temple uh, were church people. <laughs> they, were, they, they were ministers that weren't doing things the right way. Uh, th th this wasn't the lost world. Jesus was known by lost people as a friend of sinners. Uh, Jesus was always gentle was always humble, was always kind, was always friendly. Because when we are in your face obnoxious about our commitments and about our faithfulness to God, then, then we don't accomplish, we can't be an influence then for the glory of God. Now, don't compromise. Daniel never compromised. And we'll see this played out through the rest of the book. But Daniel is going to risk everything. He will never compromise. But at the same time, he is gentle and he is kind. So we have gentleness and then we have resoluteness. Uh, Jesus was the most warm, gentle person who ever lived. But he was also resolute and uncompromising. What does the world need to see in us? They don't need to see us angry. They don't need to see us with a... I dare you attitude. They need to see us firm in our convictions, but they need to see us to going about that with some wisdom and with some humility. 
I remember when I was in high school, maybe 10th grade, I'm not sure, and um, one of the books that we were assigned to read uh, became a source of contention. And I think it was an Aldous Huxley book, Brave New World, but I, I, I may not remember that exactly right. Uh, I didn't really, uh, I didn't have anything against it other than I just didn't want to read a book. Uh, but there were parents in the community that uh, decided that that would not be a good influence on their children. And so these parents, in the name of Christ, uh, organized these picket lines or, I don't know what you, a protest with signs and everything else as the teachers would arrive at the school, they were yelling at them and and it, uh, I was not a believer, and I was a 10th grader, so that tells you how much wisdom I, I had 10th grade wisdom, okay? So I can, though, remember even then, this is absurd. First of all, all those moms out there yelling that this Aldous Huxley book was going to corrupt their kids, uh, most of their kids had Playboy magazines in their school lockers. So I don't know if there would have been a whole lot of corruption going on, but, so he, here, here's the point I'm, I'm making. I think parents ought to pick the kid, books their kids get to read, and I think there's the books your kids ought not read, and I think as a parent you ought to get to pick that. That's not the issue. But I wonder if there was something short of a protest with signs and cheers and yelling. So there's one thing to have Christian commitments and convictions this is another thing to just be obnoxious. You, know, you, you wonder, what if the parents had gotten together and they would have presented some alternative book ideas, uh, classic books that dystopian or whatever, whatever they were trying to teach us, uh, what if they presented some alternatives? What if these parents had loved on those teachers all year long and had built a relationship with them by going and helping and volunteering and, and then perhaps they could have had a conversation. I, I doubt the teachers were wicked, terrible people. I mean, perhaps, I mean, as a 10th grader, I probably thought they were. But see, what I'm saying is we need to be firm and gentle. How did Daniel never compromise yet in this pagan culture get promoted to one of the top trusted advisors to the wicked king. He was firm and he was gentle. Number three, the third attitude that brought the plot twist was shameless prayer. So David Daniel, rather, goes to the king, asks for more time, promises he'll bring back the answer. And then what does he do? Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. And so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. So first they had, Daniel had this unshakable faith. And because he had an unshakable faith, he was able to be firm yet gentle. 
And now, because he has this unshakable faith and he's firm and he's gentle, he's able to have shameless prayer. He prays about it. Now, here's what I mean by shameless. He didn't keep this quiet. This was a very public thing. It's in the book, right? And he's going to tell the king, Nebuchadnezzar, in a few verses that he got this answer from God. He is not ashamed about his commitment to prayer. You know, the first thing, one of the first things that our lost world should see about about us, about Christians, is that we're people of prayer and we're not ashamed to be people of prayer. They ought to hear us talk about prayer. They ought to see prayer as our first resort, not our last resort. They should know that we shamelessly believe that God hears the prayers of his people. The word prayer ought to be a part of our vocabulary when we talk to people. When somebody is talking about, I don't know what the world is coming to, you should talk about prayer. When people talk about how bad the economy is, you should talk about prayer. When people talk about how mixed up politics uh, can be, you should talk about prayer. When people talk about their fear of cancer or COVID or interest rates, you should talk about prayer. Prayer. That, that is, we should be known by the lost world as prayers. They might not believe prayer means anything. They might not believe it has any value. I mean, that's sort of, that's, that's God's part of the convincing. But what they ought to be clear on is that we believe it, right? They may not believe it, okay? That, we'll leave that to the Lord. We can't make them believe that prayer is what it is, but we can make them believe that we believe it. And so Daniel, a man of unashamed prayer, but, but notice something else about his prayer. He doesn't pray alone. He goes to these three men and he shares, he shares with them and they pray together. There is value in having people that can pray with you. If you don't have people who can pray with you, uh, then you don't have Christian friends. You may have friends that are Christians, but a Christian friend is someone who will pray with you and prays with you often. When's the last time? I don't mean just you lift listed something on a prayer list in your Sunday school class, and I think that's a valuable thing, but when's the last time you called somebody and said, hey, I, 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 I need you to pray, and if you don't mind, I, I'm going to stay on the phone while you do it. Would you pray for me? That's the kind of person that Daniel was. I love the story, and I'm way over time, but I, I love the story in Mark chapter 9. In the Gospels, Jesus was away from the disciples for a little while, Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, the disciples, some of them who remained, uh, a father brings a son who, has, who is possessed by a demon and asks for help. And so they say, well, we can help you. We've seen Jesus do this a bunch. And so they tried to help and they failed. They failed miserably. And then Jesus, uh, he arrives and in the middle of the situation, he just does it. Mark chapter 9. It's actually in three of the four Gospels, the story. Uh, but he just takes care of it. He fixes it. So then the disciples, once all the excitement is over, the disciples pull Jesus aside and they ask a question. Why couldn't we do that? And you know what Jesus said? Some things are only solved by prayer. You see, there, you've got some problems 
and you're not smart enough to fix them. You're not strong enough. You're not wealthy enough. You're not mature enough. You can't just, just toughen up and work harder. You can't just be more determined. You can't just endure and wait it out. No, you have some things in your life, like I have some things in my life, that only come out by prayer. Daniel and his friends, minus the prayer, would have been pulled limb from limb. And this would have been one of the shortest books in the Old Testament. I don't have time, but if you read after Daniel prayed and God gave him the answer, I encourage you to read verses 19 through 23 as he thanks the Lord. It's a powerful prayer there. But let me get to number four, signposting, signposting. I don't know if that's a word or not, uh, but, but let me show you what I mean. If you go, go all the way down to verse 25, it says, uh, then Arioch, remember that's the executioner, Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. Now, notice what Arioch says. He says, I found a man. King, I've solved the problem. Who is Arioch crediting with the solution? Himself. King, I, I solved this. I guess he was hoping for a promotion. He wanted the king to give him a reward. I did it. Arioch, I'm Arioch, and I have solved the king's problem. Now, look at verse 26. The next verse, the king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? And Daniel said in verse 27, I love 27 and 28. Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he's asked. He says, listen, king, no, I, I can't tell you because nobody can tell you. That's impossible. But, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days, your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay out in the bed are these. And then he gives them this, both the dream and the interpretation, which we, we may come to next week. But how, how did Daniel's attitude differ from Arioch's attitude? Arioch claimed credit. I found this man. Solve your problem, king. Daniel could have used this information to have benefited himself greatly. He could have become the number two ruler in the land. But he used this information to glorify God. He said, King, I, I, I don't know. I can't do this, but God has told me. But God has told me. Let's read. I know we're out of time, but, but, but look at the next verse. Daniel continues to talk. He says, Your Majesty, while you were in your beds, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. He says the dream came from God. And then verse 30, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the, well, let's stop there. So first he says, I know the answer, but it's not because I'm smarter than all these other guys that don't know the answer. It's not because I'm anything. See, Daniel's not taking any credit. He's going all the way, all nine yards, to make sure the king doesn't think that Daniel is smarter or wiser. So he said, it's not because, in verse 30, I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order. Here's the reason. 
in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you understand the thoughts of your, of your mind. David is signposting. He's, he says, it's not me. I'm simply a signpost pointing to the glory of God. Let me read two more verses here and I'll, I'll quit. Uh, verse 46, this is after the, the vision is given. As I said, we may come back to that next week. But look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down and worshipped Daniel. Wow, what a plot twist. They were killing Daniel just a couple of dozen verses earlier. So now the king is worshiping Daniel and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of, of mysteries. God was glorified. God was glorified. How can you and I be signposts for God, signposts for God's glory? We should recognize that like Daniel did, all good things come from the Lord. If you have anything to offer, if you have any wisdom, if you have any skill, talent, gifts, it's all from the Lord. And then we should say it. Hey, listen, if, um, if I've helped out this company, I want you to know it's because of the Lord. If I've, uh, if I've done anything good, it's really the Lord. I'm not smarter than anybody. It's the Lord in me. And we need to say it. Now, I've heard people say, I can't because it wouldn't be professional. I can't because uh, that's uh, not something that would get me promoted. I can't because it's not accepted in my workspace. I can't because it's not allowed. Listen, hogwash. The only purpose you have for drawing another breath is that you might bring glory to God. Let us lose everything else in life if we have to, to bring glory to God. If you're in a situation where they won't let you glorify God, then you're just not in the situation God wants you to be. Don't be obnoxious. Jesus wasn't, Daniel wasn't, we shouldn't be. But stand firm. Trust the Lord and speak for the glory of God. That's how we live in a pagan culture. Now, I wasn't honest. I do have one more thing. Who were the most direct beneficiaries of Daniel's actions? He took this risk. Think about it. Who, who benefited from this the most? The people who benefited the most were the diviners, the Chaldeans, the failed advisors, right? They were all about to be killed, and now they're all spared. They deserved it the least. I mean, these were just a bunch of buffoons, right? They were frauds. They were fakes. They didn't deserve to be saved from the wrath of the king, but they were. They lived. They lived because of the obedience and the faithful service of Daniel. Isn't that interesting? They also had a problem that was impossible, right? Life or death. King said, tell me the dream, and they couldn't. There was no way out. But Daniel solved the unsolvable problem. You know, one of the things I want us to learn as we study this book is that Jesus is the greater Daniel. 
Who are the most direct beneficiaries of Jesus' work as he lived a sinless life and he died on the cross? You know, the most direct beneficiaries are me and you, the people who deserve it least. I don't deserve it. I'm guilty of sin. and My sin separates me from God. I am sinful through and through. I don't deserve God's grace, but I have benefited from it because of the greater Daniel, Jesus. I had an unsolvable problem. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus came and solved the problem for me. If you have never at any point in your life understood how hopeless you are in your sins, but how Jesus is the greater Daniel, how Jesus, because of what he has done, his death on the cross, as he paid the penalty for our sins, has made it possible for us to be right with God. If you've never understood that before, and then prayed and said, God, I'm guilty, but I trust what Jesus has done, and I surrender my life to you, I invite you to do that right now, just in your own words. This isn't complicated. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. And then when we sing both services, come and tell somebody. We won't put you on the spot. If you don't want to do anything public, we, we won't make you do that. But Daniel did a, an extraordinary thing for all of those, all of those advisors. And that reminds us that Jesus has done an even more extraordinary thing for us. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, Father in heaven, we're just so amazed at Jesus. And I pray that what he has done for us would just draw us to you, that we'll respond faithfully. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.